This is Dave Naderhood, and it's my privilege every week at this same time to highlight another church here around the Bay Area where God is on the move. This week was no different as we had a chance to learn about South Valley Community Church and their senior pastor, Isaac Serrano, and mission pastor, Sam Whitaker, are here in studio with me today to talk a little bit more about it. Welcome back, guys. Thanks. You know, we had a chance uh, this week to hear a lot about, in a short amount of time, to hear a lot of um, uh, compelling things about South Valley Community Church. One of the things that I heard you say, Isaac, was that uh, your your gift of preaching and teaching was is something of a compulsion. Like I, I just love the book, and so I, therefore I teach the book. Yeah, is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and that led to a uh, uh, identification that the, the church is going to be gospel centered and mission focused. Uh, Sam, we then heard from you about some of the ways that that mission impulse gets carried out. Right. That's right. Um, can you share with us, uh, Sam, first, uh, what are some of the countries that the church is engaged with, uh, for those that may have missed that part of the interview, and um, that connection between the, the local and the global vision for that? Yeah, well, we're connected in five different focus countries, Nigeria, Tanzania, Cambodia, Haiti, and um, Cuba. Mm-hmm. And in all of those places, we're just looking for opportunities to partner with people and churches, um, church planting movements, hospitals, orphanages, schools, seminaries, huge variety. We could talk all day about what we're doing there. And we try to take that exact same approach locally, partnering with organizations and ministries that share our same vision and that have complementary assets where we can help them and, and they can help us. Uh, I've always... Uh been amazed at having lived in the Bay Area since um, mid-90s, you know, uh, just having come from the Midwest where, where things were much more boxed in. Uh, the closest thing I think we have to a true melting pot of different cultures is here in the Bay Area. That's right. You know, people living next to each other who don't have the same language spoken around the table. Yep. And um, rather than, I mean, it still happens. We have more segregated communities here as well. Uh, but but there's an ex- a broad acceptance of the fact. I, I think of uh, I mean I walk from from Bart to the uh, radio station here, and I'll hear more I'll hear more Hindi and Farsi spoken than mm. English. Yeah, and you know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the world has come to us. And um, Isaac, you know, what's your heart in that? In terms of just seeing a, a church equipped to be able to to bear the gospel in a deeply multicultural context. Yeah, that's um, right at the center of, of our vision. Um, it's funny that you would bring that up. It's For me, uh, I look at secular culture at large right now, and there is a massive drive to create a kind of, I would call it a false multiculturalism, trying to unite people around things that you really can't unite around. Mm. Um, and it fails time and time again. That's why we're still seeing um, racism, all just horrible things in our in our current culture right now. But um, what secular culture tries to do by uniting multiple ethnicities and people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, the church is actually God's tool to do that. We center on Christ so that neither Jew nor Gentile just isn't a kind of a cheap kind of cheesy phrase. It is a, it's a political statement. It's a socioeconomic statement. It is saying that in Jesus, all of these things that divide us go away. And it's yeah. the only hope that we have for true healing in that. So what secular culture tries to do is create this um, 
replica of what the church is actually designed to do. Unfortunately, churches don't do well at that either. And so it's our job in the Bay Area, as you said, in a melting pot, in a place where God is bringing the nations before us Mm -hmm. to create and do church in a way that glorifies the name of Christ by uniting all people under the banner of, of the Son. So. Wow, that is uh, well said. Uh, under the banner of the sun, you know, I think that you, you just, uh, you know, the image of, because um, so many people are familiar with protesting, you know, here in, yeah. in the Bay Area. And uh, I remember a phrase um, uh, that I, I think now everybody's favorite heretic, but uh, Brian McLaren um, yeah, taught yeah. me that instead of um, uh, Protestants, that we become known as protestifiers. Yeah. You know, that mm. we protestify about, uh, instead of being known as, uh, this is why we're against Catholics or against, I mean, everybody exactly. in America yeah. knows why evangelical Christians are against this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. But what are we for, right? right? Yeah. What are we standing for under the banner of Christ? Yeah. That we would be uh, leading this march <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of an army of love, right? And, and just protestifying to mm-hmm. the goodness of the gospel of, of, uh, of God's grace. Um, Isaac, we're going to hear a message in a moment here. Um, what's the message about that we're going to hear today? And um, if you don't mind, after a little intro, could you say a word of prayer for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is the first sermon in a series that we're not even done with yet. It's called The Thorns and Crowns, and it's a mm. massive series through the kind of big story of the Bible. So this is week one, starting in Genesis. And the intent is... Um, I'm a history geek, so it's kind of going to dig into the kind of ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis, unpack that and show that the primary meaning of Genesis 1 is to show that there is one God, he's a good God, and he's created the world for the flourishing of humanity, and then kind of in everything we do make it gospel-centric so that you see in the New Testament there is stuff in Genesis 1 that doesn't come out, that, that comes out in the New, that that this is for Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, and yeah. tying, tying, tying all that in together. The Genesis 1 to John 1 connection and beyond, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. awesome. I love it. And I, um, I'm looking forward to listening in and hearing some uh, more of the messages from this series. If folks want to uh, come by and experience worship over at South Valley, uh, what are their options? When can they do that? Yeah, we have services in Gilroy at 9 and 11, and then in Hollister at 10 a.m. and then 6 p.m. And then uh, our Spanish-speaking service is at 11 a.m. in downtown Gilroy at Centro Espano is the name of the campus. Awesome. And there's a, a special Isaac shuttle bus, I think, that takes you back and forth between these services. You're teaching live at all yeah, those I services. Yeah, I teach live. Uh, I go back and forth. We make it happen. <laughs> We're going to find like a transmogrifier machine or some some way to get you there quicker. Yeah. Um, uh, Well, folks, as you're listening today, we'd ask you to be in prayer for South Valley Church. And if you don't have a church home, uh, for whatever reason, if you've been disconnected from church for a long time, or maybe you're new to the area, you live in South San Jose or the South Valley, uh, we would really encourage you to check out South Valley Church. Uh, Listen to more sermons online at svccchurch.com, and you can also find directions there, uh, check on their service times, and get in touch with them. They would love to connect with you. So, um, Pastor Isaac and Pastor Sam, thanks so much for being with us on the Ministry of the Week. Um, we're looking forward to uh, keeping in touch with how yeah. uh, how God's moving there in the South Valley. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, folks, as you uh, listen to the God's Word now, we just want to set the stage and, and ask Pastor Isaac to have a word of prayer as we uh, go dive into God's Word and learn 
about this amazing story of God's grace for our lives. Father God, we ask you uh, and come to you in the name of Jesus, asking that forever who might be listening to the message or the radio, whatever it might be, just that um, they would know that you are a good God, that whatever circumstances they may find themselves in, that you, you are good and you are for them. Yes. So we pray that you draw people uh, into your church um, and they would find uh, communities that they can do uh, this thing we call life deeper together, mm. um, centered around your son and his work. And we pray these, these, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now we'll hear the message from Pastor Isaac Serrano, lead pastor at South Valley Community Church, our KFAX Ministry of the Week. Let's get started. In the very, very beginning, the Bible begins with beautiful Hebrew words, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God. But the interesting thing immediately from this text is that the word for God in Hebrew that's used is Elohim. Now that describes what this being is, but it doesn't describe who he is. Let me make that make sense. I'm Isaac. That's who I am. That's my name. What I am is a man. Elohim in Hebrew is just the generic word for God. It is not his name. In other words, Genesis introduces God by what he is, not who he is. If I were to tell a story about myself, I can tell that story in two ways. Isaac went to the store. Isaac bought Red Bull. Isaac saw a chihuahua and looked down with disgust. Um, Or I can say, so there's this man, and this man went to the store, and this man went to the grocery store, and this man looked down with disgust upon a chihuahua. Both are true stories, but one is telling you in a more intimate way, and it's revealing my name. Here's the interesting thing about Genesis chapter 1. Not once does it use the Hebrew name of God. That appears suddenly in chapter 2, and it appears all over the place. But in chapter 1, there's just this God, this Elohim. Next week, and in chapter 2, we'll talk about who this God is. But for right now, the story just begins with Elohim. By the way, just a quick note. Um, In your Bibles, you know the Hebrew name of God is being used when you see the word Lord all in capitals. If you see God or Lord in lowercase, that's a different word. So if you want to fact check me, you can look in Genesis 1 and you'll just see God all over the place. And then Genesis 2, you're going to see Lord capitalized. This God is said to create heaven and earth. That's a Hebrew expression for totality. It means everything, the sum total of existence. There is this God and he begins to create. The text goes on. The earth was without form and void. One more Hebrew word for you to remember, this phrase, without form and void. Tohu valvohu. If you remember that in nine weeks, I'm going to ask it. And if you actually remember that, I'll give you a gift card or something. We're upgrading, not just like something cheap. I'll give you like a 50-cent gift card to the Dollar Tree or something like that. (laughs) The earth was without form and void, this tohu valvohu, this chaotic blackness. And it says... The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, you need to understand that at this point, we are in groundbreaking territory. In the history of world religions, nothing like this statement has ever been made. See, there's tons of stories about how the world was created in in many different ancient cultures. And they usually begin in a similar manner, that there's this kind of chaos and water that's moving, but the major difference about Genesis compared to every other story 
is that in Genesis, there's just this one God. In the other stories, there's many gods. So, for example, in the Babylonian creation kind of myth, um, it's called Enuma Elish. There's these two gods, Apsu and Tiamat, and they are coming together and they are giving birth to all kinds of uh, smaller gods, some of them good, some of them bad. There's angels, there's demons, but there's all these demon angel super gods in the watery chaos, and out of that watery chaos, a war in heaven breaks out and someone rises to the top. You need to understand that's the way everyone in the ancient world thought. Genesis begs to differ. In the beginning, there is this God, and this God is the only God that there is. There is no one else. Radical, groundbreaking, transforming. Now, this is why this is incredibly important. We are modern people, so for the most part, we bring modern questions upon a very ancient document. And when we bypass what the text, the Bible is actually trying to say by trying to come up with answers that are relevant for us, we miss the author's original intent. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to figure out what the Bible means for me today. However, more times than not, people skip over what was the Bible trying to say then. You have to answer the question, what was the Bible trying to say then? And then, how is what they said then apply to me today? When people pick up a Bible today and get to Genesis 1, what do they want to know? Think about it. Everybody. They want to know, does this story match with what modern science is saying? 90% of people. Maybe you don't. You're the exception. But everyone debates, and there's people think, oh, maybe the earth is young, maybe the earth is old, and even in Christian circles, there's not real agreement, but everyone's trying to find the answer from the first few chapters of Genesis. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think the Bible... It's true, it's inspired, it's the Word of God, but the Word of God in Genesis chapter 1 is not primarily trying to give you a scientific, modern explanation for the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 1 is trying to pound into its readers a truth. And that truth is the radical, revolutionary, groundbreaking statement that a tiny group of people called Israelites held that no one else on the face of the earth did is that there is one God. may not sound like a big deal to everybody. Radical, revolutionary, groundbreaking. There is only one God. If you understand that that is the main point that the author of Genesis 1 is trying to get at, all kinds of things will come to light and come to surface in this story that our eyes have never caught because we're usually looking for other things. Let me show you how this works. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, first off, this story begins with this God creating existence by his spoken word, which is interesting later because in the Bible, there's another book called John, and it talks about this in a different way, but the three elements of God speaking and having his spirit hover over the waters will resurface. Remember that for 15 weeks from now. Um, there's about... The last kind of estimate that scientists do, uh, kind of found for the observable universe, about... Mm, 10 trillion galaxies, an average galaxy has about 100 billion stars. You time that out, you're at like 100 octillion. That's one with 29 zeros behind it. That's the number of stars in 
the observable universe. This God speaks that into existence. Let there be done. Now, God also creates things, names them, and calls them. Why is this important if the author is trying to pound home into his audience that there's only one God? Well, in the ancient Near East, the world and culture that the Bible was written in, if you name something, that means you have dominion and authority over it. You can tell your kids that, by the way, if you're a parent. You can say, hey, it's in Genesis 1. I named you. Authority, dominion. There's also dominion, authority, and it, there's a, it entails responsibility, too, but you don't have to tell them that part. Um, God is naming things in creation over and over again. Now, if you just read Genesis chapter 1 and you're not aware of that, you're just like, yeah, God likes to name things. No, this is the way of telling an ancient audience that everything in existence God has named and called. That means he has authority and dominion over it. This is why it's important. Everyone in the ancient world thought those things that God were creating were God's. There's a sun god, there's a moon god, there's river gods, mountains gods, ocean gods, gods of sea, gods of land, gods of heaven, gods of the underworld, gods of earth. Everything had a god. This Elohim creates everything by his spoken word and he names them. He has dominion and authority over all things. This is incredibly important because in the next chapter, after humanity is created, what does God ask Adam to do? Name the animals. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate and waters from the, the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, if we're not careful and we just read through this really fast, we miss that, again, the author is talking about God dividing, separating, organizing, putting things in place, naming, putting his authority and dominion over everything. God is depicted in the first six days of creation as a God who works. Then he creates an image bearer and puts him in a garden and tells him to work. All of this happens before what the Bible and theologians call the fall or when sin enters into the world. I cannot tell you how many times Christians think that work is a curse because of sin. Work was around with God in Genesis 1 and with man in Genesis 2 before any evil or any of that other stuff came in. What happens, the major difference is that after sin enters into the world, work becomes harder. And we're going to get to that next week. But for now, just know this God, this Elohim, is a God who works and he is a God that tells man to work and he says that that is a good thing. Christians should be the hardest workers on the face of the earth because work is good and honoring to God. The Bible has strong words for laziness. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. Question, what's the greater and lesser light? Sun and moon. Why doesn't the Bible just say sun and moon? 
It's like, why is it trying to be poetic or something? No, here's the issue. Is the actual Hebrew words for sun and moon, Shemesh and Yareach, are names of Canaanite deities. So the surrounding cultures in Israel today, they actually worship the sun and the moon, and the name of the sun god was the name of the sun, and the name of the moon god was the name of the moon. The author of Genesis refuses to let those names even enter into his text. Those letters, those syllables will not be said in Genesis chapter 1. God creates the sun. God creates the moon. When everyone else around Israel thought they were deities and gods to be worshipped, this Elohim speaks them into existence. And then notice, kind of it just says, and the stars. It's like, that's, that's a big deal. You're just going to throw stars in there too? Just told you there's like 10 octillion of them. What's the big deal? You look at how ancient cultures talked about the stars, every time you will see that they'll never just say, and the stars. They will always talk about the stars in magnificent and significant ways because the stars were said to control human destiny. The stars were sometimes deities. The stars were sometimes gods, and that's how humans figured out reality and meaning. Do we have stuff like that still around in our culture, by the way? Absolutely. Some of you looking down right now. You should be looking down. (laughs) And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarm according to their kinds and every wing burn according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I underlined the word created right before the great sea monsters. Word for great sea monsters, tanin, is actually usually translated serpent, dragon, or sea monster. However, because modern Americans ask modern questions, we usually think things like, we can't have in Genesis 1 it's saying God creates sea monsters because we have modern science and we know there's no such thing as sea monsters anymore. Well, two things. One, watch those uh, nature shows. (laughs) There's some sea monsters in the ocean, man. There's some (laughs) crazy-looking demon fish. But thousands of years ago, People thought the ocean was a place that held great evil sea creatures. Now, why would you think that? Because sometimes you might see one wash up to shore. I mean, mean, have you ever seen something massive wash up to shore? It's like, oh my gosh, this is from another universe. The ocean is like another planet. So in these ancient cultures, they said, in the deep waters, there are these crazy evil creatures monsters. And many times they thought these monsters were gods. Many times they thought these monsters would attack the gods, and sometimes the gods would have to defeat the sea monsters. But here is the point. This Hebrew word that's underlined created was not used since Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. But now it comes back, and it wants its audience to know that whatever's in that ocean, however powerful you think that is, whether it's a blue well or you think it's a dragon— God created it. He is sovereign over all of creation. If you've been brought up in church, you've heard stuff like that for your entire life. But most people don't think like that. And what I'll show us in a minute is we don't live like it anyway. God is sovereign over all creation. And everything in creation is good. 
every day, good, good, good. And God created, and he said, this is good. Then at the end of the kind of the, the, the six-day cycle, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is not the majesty of the mountains or the, the splendor of sun, stars, and moons that the clim- is the climax or the, the chief pinnacle of creation. It is human beings. Human beings are made in this wonderful image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? You've probably heard things like, it means human beings have morality, intellect, emotion, reason, ration, all those things. And all of that's true. But there's three kind of primary definitions and examples of how the word image was used in the time the Bible was written. One had to do with kings. Say you're the king of Egypt, you're Pharaoh, you're in charge. You would declare yourself to be the image of God on earth. Why is that important? Because if you're a king and you want your people to listen to you and they they know you're not that bright, you tell them, I am the voice of God on earth. And by the way, um, in one way or another, world leaders do the same thing. They act like they are the sovereign ones, that they don't have to submit into account to anybody. So Pharaoh would say, I am the image of God, God's voice on earth. I am his divine mouthpiece. Now, what is the Bible doing? It's radically attacking that idea, and it says, not Pharaoh, all human beings bear the royal stamp. All human beings, not just Pharaoh, not just kings, not just a certain elite group of people, not just this ethnicity. Every single man and woman is made in the image of God. The second thing image of God meant in the time Genesis was written is it referred to idols. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, it says, make no graven images, means idols, and if it's a little statue that would represent a God. So what happens is, is, If you worship the sun god, you and your people would build a temple, and once that temple was ready to be dedicated, you would then carve out an idol and you'd put it in the middle of the temple. And that was a way of saying that even though we can't see this god, his idol has symbolic representation and is saying that this god is here present in this temple. What is the Bible doing? Human beings now function as the symbolic representation of God on earth. It doesn't mean human beings are divine. It doesn't mean they are God. But human beings are supposed to be the greatest sign and evidence for God on earth. And for those of you who are parents, or even if you're not a parent, I've always said this, you hold a child, you hold a baby, a new baby is born. I've, I, and this is true. I've seen atheists who, may, they, they, st- they stay being atheists, but the way they describe their child being born, I'm going, I think you started to worship God and you just didn't even know it. The third way image of God is used is very similar to the, the two first ideas. If a king expanded his empire, 
he would put statues or images of himself in the far corners of his empire to let people know that even though I'm not there, my rule and reign should still be executed here. So Caesar in the Roman Empire, his capital was in Rome, but at some points the Roman Empire expanded all the way to Spain. So what did Caesar do? He put images of himself on the shores in Spain so that when boats were coming in, they would know that even though Caesar's in Rome, his rule and reign should still be executed in Spain as it is in Rome. So, so what is Genesis trying to get at? Genesis says all human beings are made in the image of God, not just the rich, not just the strong, not just Pharaoh, not just king, not just the elite, but the weak, the poor, the needy, the outcast, the downtrodden, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, your socioeconomic background, your race, your color, whatever, you are made in the image of God. Everyone is of utmost importance. Every single human being de- bears the royal stamp. Then it says human beings in a very mysterious way should be a sign and a representation of God on earth and they should go out and subdue all of creation so that no matter where you go on earth, there's image bearers saying that the will of God will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now the next and first command in the Bible will make sense. It's been people's favorite Bible verse for hundreds of years, but they never knew the reason why. What's the first thing God tells Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. God wants image bearers all across his good creation, and he wants them to rule and to reign and execute responsibility in a way that reflects the glory of goodness of God. Something goes terribly wrong. We'll get to that later. But that's the intent. Last kind of history piece, and then for those of you who hate history, we're we're moving on. But this is the last part of the the seven-week cycle and of utmost importance. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, when we usually think of rest, we're modern Americans, so rest means something to us. Um, It means, oh my God, you know, uh, especially Californians and people who live in the Silicon Valley, we think we're so busy. I mean, it's like, I'm so busy, and somebody goes, no, I am really busy, I'm super busy. But usually it's a part of our own doing. We create that. For some of you, you don't, and there's circumstances... um, But for the most part, we create that busyness. And we think rest is like, okay, I'm not going to do any work. I got to unplug. I'm not going to answer my my work phone or answer my emails. But oh, no, my farm bill's on my phone. I can't rest without playing video games. How's this going to work? There is truth to that. Rest does mean not working. It means something far more important than that. There are tons of documents from the time that Genesis was written. And they all have a similar story of um, a king building his empire or a temple to a god in seven days. And after the construction is done of the temple, on the seventh day, the king rests. But rest isn't, oh, the king went and took a nap. Rest is when after finishing his project, the king sits on his throne 
and he now rules and reigns and rests after the completion of the work. When someone builds something in the ancient world and they rest on the seventh day, that is language saying the king is beginning to sit on the throne and watch his creation work. Let me give you an example, because every one of you has done it. Raise your hand if you like gardening. I love gardening. You should all have jalapenos. It's the most neglected uh, fruit vegetable on the face of the earth. I'm going to start a campaign to raise awareness for the glory and goodness of jalapenos. So make sure they're in your garden. Picture you starting off at 7 in the morning, but rather than days, we're going to use hours. Hour 1, you bring in dirt. Hour 2, you fertilize. Hour 3, you put some seeds in the ground. Hour 4, you bring out, we're going to go fancy, we're going to do a drip system, not just sprinklers. You know what drip systems are? This weird stuff, man, just hoses that leak just a little bit for like hours at a time. The fifth hour, you bring in, uh, you're going to plant some tomatoes. You put those little tomato things in where the tomatoes grow on. And at uh, six, day six, you, you um, bring in something special, even greater than a jalapeno, a ghost pepper. And you put it in the center of the garden and you plant it. And then let's say it's been 100 degrees that day and you're sweating and you're filthy what do you do? You go get something cold to drink and you go sit down and usually you put your arms out like this. There's almost something inside of you that's telling you you are the king in this moment. You turn on the the, the drip system and you watch your work work. Get that? This is what's occurring in Genesis chapter 1. It's the king sitting on his throne and watching his good creation work and do exactly what it's supposed to do. The Hebrew word for that is shalom. It's harmony. It means everything is doing everything it's supposed to do, and now it's time for the king to rest. So what does it mean for God's image bearers to work for six days and then rest? Doesn't, don't go home and tell your wife, I'm the king, now serve me, baby. That's not the way it works. It means that all human beings have the royal stamp, and after working hard, God says it's good for you to sit back and watch your work work for the flourishing of humanity. Okay, now, what is the one thing Genesis is trying to say over and over and over again? It's the radical, revolutionary, groundbreaking statement that there is only one God. God is one, and it's he alone. And this would change the face of world religions forever. There's only one. Second, and this is incredibly important, this God is good. Many of the other stories, there's good gods, there are bad gods, they fight each other, sometimes good gods do bad things, but this God, this Elohim, is consistently, day after day, good and creating good things. And that leads us to the third step, the goodness that God is creating and putting in the world is for humanity. So three major truths that Genesis pounds in the reader. There is one God, and it's he alone. There's no one else. Second, this God is good. And lastly, this goodness is created for the enjoyment, pleasure, and contentment of his image bearers. And the image bearers should be hard workers that do his will on earth as it is in heaven. Genesis chapter 2. And three, we'll find more about the image bearers and how something goes terribly wrong. But if you get Genesis 1 right, you know that creation is good, God is good, and he wants creation for humanity. 
Many Christians think that creation is a bad thing that God ultimately is going to destroy and he will help us escape to his heavenly kingdom at the end of time. The story the Bible is telling is about God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven, whether anybody likes it or not. And for those who are his children and want to obey, they will be a part of the coming together of heaven and earth. For those that don't, there is something else. It is exile. And we're going to talk more about that and what that actually is. We call that hell in the modern language. So, I've left out the whole time the author of Genesis. I haven't said who it is, but some of you who um, grew up in the church or are Bible scholars, you'll know that the author of Genesis is Moses. Moses writes and receives the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, when the people of Israel are leaving Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery. Okay? Why is this important? Imagine you're an Israelite, and you've been told your whole life there's only one God. But you and your dad and his dad and his dad and his dad have been a slave in Egypt. And in Egypt, they worship other gods. And while they enslave you, they mock you, torture you, spit on your face and say, your God is weak. Our gods are strong. Then through some crazy miracles that you don't quite understand, you and your people with this guy Moses are delivered out of Egypt and you're told that the one true God of heaven and earth has saved you and you cross the sea, this Red Sea, which is total miraculously, it's awesome and cool and you love it, but then guess where this guy named Moses and God take you? To a desert wasteland for 40 years. A lot of people die there. In that day... No one ever goes to the desert because there's no food or water. People in ancient cultures thought that the deserts were places where the evil gods lived. Why? Because they don't give us any food or water there. They want us to die. So what do a people leaving Egypt after 100 years of oppression entering a desert wasteland without food or water need to know? There is one God. He is a good God. And this God is for you, not against you. The people of Israel would always triumph that theological statement. It kind of summed up best in my mind from a song in in the book of Psalms, chapter 20. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. A radical statement. In oppression, in bad times, in good times, in a barren desert wasteland where you're, you're relying on bread to fall from heaven, you tell yourself, despite what circumstances may be, despite the evil suffering and sin I see in the world, the God that is revealed in Genesis chapter 1 is a good God. And even though I don't understand it, he's up to something and it's good and it will go in my favor. God is one, he is a good God, and he is for them, even in a desert wasteland. Now, uh, a lot of people think that Genesis 1 is all you need to know about creation. Everyone forgets that there's other parts in the Bible that talk about creation. Um, But for some reason, Genesis 1 is where all the debates go. I'm I'm telling you, Genesis 1 is missing the most important component of creation. If all you get from uh, uh, your theology of creation is from Genesis chapter 1, you're failing miserably to understand Genesis 1. Because Genesis 1 doesn't talk about the point of Genesis 1. 
It's Jesus. And how do I know that? Because after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he chooses men and women to start bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And one of the leaders in the early church named Paul the Apostle says this, something you never get from Genesis 1. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image, the perfect image of the invisible God, the firstborn, meaning the one who has authority over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, Genesis 1 is by him and for him and through him. Jesus, creation for him, by him, and through him. He is the superstar. He is the spotlight. He is the point. So although Genesis 1 just says this God is named Elohim, the New Testament would tell us his name is Jesus. And this is the name above all names. So let me bring it home for us today. What do people living in the modern world need to know? Because, you know, we don't believe in the river God. We don't believe in the moon God. You need to know that there is one God, and he is a good God, and he is for you. And that's incredibly difficult to believe. We may not be living in a physical desert wasteland, but when you turn on the news, those three truths are easy to forget. Genesis 1 is just as relevant to people wandering around in a desert as it is us. When you turn on the news and you see a group named ISIS slaughtering countless people, when you see refugees, when you see starving children, you will ultimately tell yourself, there is no way that there's just this one God who's good and for humanity. You need to know deep in your bones and in your soul that despite what your eyes see and what circumstances dictate, there is a good God who is up to something who if you could understand completely even in your seat right now, you would rejoice in jubilation and joy. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, but one day those pieces will come together. So what do you go to as a Christian time and time again? You go to the truth of Genesis 1. There is one God and he is a good God and he is for me, not against me. may not lack food or water, but when your marriage falls apart, what do you need to know? There is one God. I can trust him because he's good. Even though it doesn't make sense right now, I trust him because he's good and he's for me, not against me. When you lose your spouse or you have a miscarriage, this God is for me. I, and my eyes may not see it right now, but he is good and I trust in him anyway. When you lose your job or you're stressed out, in major things or small things, I know that there is a good God and I trust him. He is for me and his name is Jesus. This is the unique message that Christians have to the world. And the world is in desperate need to hear it. Oftentimes, people have heard a different message a message that there is one God, but he really, really hates humanity, and he's out to get you. 
You may never say it like that, but talk to people who were brought up in the church and left the church. How many times they said, you know, I know the people, they were generally good people, but it always felt like God was against me. Just be brave for a moment. Raise your hand if you've ever felt, and I'm not saying like these are bad Christians. I'm just saying they might have had all the best intentions in the world. They They wanted you to clean up your act, but raise your hand if you felt ever in your life that in some weird way, even though you didn't understand it intellectually, God was somehow against you. That's in a church close to half the people. That type of message and understanding usually leaves people to think, yeah, God's angry, he's going to nuke earth, and then he's going to take the Christians away. No... God has not given up on creation just like he has not given up on you. And his mission is to renew heaven and earth, not destroy it. And you can choose to be on his team or not, but it's going to get done because this God works and he goes to work and he gets the job done. What do modern people living in the modern world need to know? Despite what's going on in your life, there's a God. He's a good God. You can trust in him. He is for you. We don't have idols like river gods or moon gods, but we have our other gods. Because some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, some trust in money, some trust in technology, some trust in their bank account, some trust in sexual fulfillment, some trust in entertainment, some trust in video games, some trust in alcohol. But God's people trust in the name of the Lord our God. So wherever you're at today, care where you're at, you need to know a couple things before you leave. There is a throne room in heaven. And upon that throne sits King Jesus. And he has entered into his rest, which means he's ruling and reigning as sovereign king over the universe. He's named everything. He's created everything. He exercises all authority and dominion. Why do you think after the resurrection, before the ascension of Jesus, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me? And no matter whether you're in a good time or a bad time, whether you're stressed out or you're full of joy, none of that is as important as the fact that there is a good God who is king and he's sitting on a throne and you can put your trust in him. He is worthy. He is worth it. You're not always going to understand it. Believe me, the people of Israel did not think when they left Egypt being a desert for that long. They certainly thought they were going to eat better. Bread and quail nonstop. many times in your life you will put other people on the throne you will think other things are in control you will give sovereignty to other things you will think um, that this person has control or influence of you or this emotion and sometimes we allow those things to happen and we'll put fears or doubts or insecurities or weaknesses on the throne and say that is ultimately what's in control and Genesis 1 says no that is not who is in control God is in control and no matter what is going on in the world on the global scale not just in your own life whoever's claiming to have authority it's not powers or politicians or pundits or presidents they're not in control they will have to answer to God. 
And believe me, a lot of the world leaders will get a pat on the back, well done, good and faithful servant. And a lot of them are going to be horrified at who sits on the throne. Jesus. We're going to leave it right here because to enter into Genesis chapter 2 is to go into a whole nother world. But I wanted this to just to be an introduction to the most, some of the most fundamental truths of Christianity. There's one God, he's good, and he's for humanity. As we continue on with the rest of the series, you're going to see that all kinds of evil and wicked things occur, but that the story the Bible is telling is not one, a story that God, where God is caught off guard and he's like, oh no, what must I do now? I'm going to go send Jesus. The story is the story of a sovereign God who knows exactly what he's doing. And he refuses. Listen to me on this last thing. This God refuses to give up on creation and he refuses to give up on you. Father God, as we continue on with the rest of our service, I pray that we would worship you, whether it's through song or through giving in communion, that you would be glorified in this time. The name of your son, Jesus, would be exalted. We thank you for Genesis chapter one. Um, Help this journey through the Bible in the next 20 weeks just be an amazing time where our church grows uh, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. We love you. Amen. Amen.